Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Let us pray. Hover here, O God. Pour out your spirit on these words so that your spirit might open our hearts, inspiring us to love you and one another more deeply. Spirit, open our hearts. Amen. It is stewardship season at Northridge Presbyterian Church. And I want to say the doors have already been locked, so you can't leave. I'm sorry. There's no escape. If you're worshiping online, I guess you could click out, but I I hope you won't. (laughs) Stewardship season is an equally squirmy time for preachers and congregants alike. It's hard to talk about money, and most of us were taught to avoid talk of money at all costs, but money is a really important part of our faith, and I think it's a shame that stewardship has come to mean in most churches, it's time to fund the budget, and it's time to go back and ask for more money instead of a season to think about how we are stewarding the gifts that God has entrusted to our care instead of taking the broader view of what it means to be a person of faith, a person who has received gifts from God and is charged to use them in the world. You know, Jesus had more to say about money than almost anything else in his ministry. So that should be one quick indicator for us that it's something we just can't avoid if we are to take our faith seriously. Money can quickly become something that distorts us and distorts our faith, which probably explains why Jesus had so much to say about it. Money can be the thing that makes what we do here feel like a consumer good. I give money every year, so I expect to get certain things in return, whether it's having my worship preferences honored or a certain program run in a certain way or a certain commitment to a mission partner, you name it. It is easy to think that in offering money to the church as an act of faith, what happens here is just another form of consumerism. It's also easy for us to assume that the rules of money that we learn out there are the same when it comes to our faith. And I think that's exactly why we have to talk about money as people of faith, because money means something different to us. It is more than a way of buying a service or a good. It is more than simply chipping in to a GoFundMe campaign, as you may do with your alma mater or local organizations. Money and our relationship to money are one of the most important indicators of the health of our faith. And so the goal of stewardship season for me is for you to take stock of what your relationship to money may be telling you about your faith. 
This summer, as I was making sermon plans for the year and thinking about what scriptures would help us get to the heart of stewardship, I kept coming back to the scriptures we're about to read in this character, Joseph of Arimathea. I think his story is one of bravery and courage and conviction. And this morning, we're going to hear his story as told in two different gospels. His story actually gets told in all four of the Gospels. It's not a story that you'd expect to hear this time of year because his story is three sentences that is included in the Easter narrative, and we're rapidly approaching Advent, preparing ourselves for the birth of Christ, so you may wonder what business we have jumping ahead to the death of Christ. Now, I'm willing to bet, whether you know it or not, that you have heard this story before. If you've attended church on Easter, then there's no doubt in my mind that you have heard this scripture before, because it is part of the most important story of our faith, Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. But I'm also willing to bet that you probably haven't heard a sermon on Joseph of Arimathea. We don't spend much time with him or with this part of the story because the Easter story is so full that what we're about to read just gets skipped over in order to get on to what seem like the juicier details. But I think this story is so rich and it has so much to say to us about the relationship between money and faith. And I've got to tell you, I am really excited to preach this sermon, not because I have any answers but because I have so many questions. And I started thinking about these questions over the summer, and I'm excited to finally bring you in to this conversation that I've been having in my mind these last months. I have been coming back to these scriptures time and time again, and every time I return to these three sentences, I find new questions. And I find myself asking, what in the world is happening in this story? And so this sermon is really just what I've been wondering and imagining, a lot of the details that I've been filling in because so much gets left unsaid. And I hope by the end of the sermon, you'll have your own questions and your own imaginings about how this story played out. But before we get to that, let's listen to what the Spirit is saying to her church this day. First, with the Gospel of Matthew the 27th chapter, verses 57 through 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was himself a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. And now the same story as told by Luke. This is chapter 23, verses 50 through 53. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. 
This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew says he was rich. Now, when someone gets the adjective rich in Scripture, it's usually an indicator that they are about to learn a lesson one way or another, and we're going to see their flaws on display. In Scripture, rich is kind of like a code for shortcoming or a person who just doesn't get it. But that's not true in this story. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea is rich, and then there don't appear to be any shortcomings listed. No one is teaching him a lesson, and maybe that's why I got so fixated on him. He seems to be a different kind of rich person than the other rich people in Scripture. Now, usually, the Scriptures that we turn to when it's time to talk about money in the church are aspirational. Like how many people have heard stewardship sermons about the widow's might, the woman who gave her two coins, or Jesus' command to the rich young ruler who just didn't get it and told him to sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor, or the words from the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters, you cannot serve God and money. And it occurred to me that maybe one of the reasons that it's so hard for us as people of faith to talk about money is because of the scriptures that we're using to start the conversation. I realized in my planning for this year that I've never heard a stewardship sermon or maybe any sermon for that matter about a rich person that wasn't jaded by the assumption that wealth is bad. Now, I've heard plenty of stewardship sermons that seem unattainable for the majority of hearers, myself included. Who is going to sell all their possessions and give their money to the poor? If the rich young ruler couldn't do it after Jesus commanded him directly, then I'm under no illusion that by me standing here telling you to do the same, you'll decide to follow that for yourself. And is the story of the impoverished widow giving all she has really relatable to us? It's admirable, yes, but relatable? Probably not. But then there's this rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. And finally, I feel like there's someone we can relate to. And maybe you're thinking, now don't say that I'm like him just because it says he's rich. I'm not rich. Or maybe you're thinking, well, there's someone richer than me. And that's true. There's always someone richer than you. But if you have a warm place to sleep at night, and you had a jacket to put on as you climbed into the car to come here this morning, if you know where your next meal is coming from, if you have a line of credit, a working car, we could go on with this all day, but you get the picture. If you have any of those things, then make no mistake, you are rich, just like Joseph of Arimathea. He had a house. He never had to wonder how long he'd go without a meal. He was well-employed. He was 
he was a leader in the community. And somehow, he came to be a follower of Jesus. Now, part of why I'm fascinated with this story in each of the Gospels is that so many details are left out. We have no idea how he came to be a follower of Jesus, but we know he was. Something stirred him and made him decide, you know what? I'm going to put my faith in that man. I'm going to follow his example. And then Luke tells us something else that is interesting. That Joseph was a member of the council. So let me translate that for you. That means very influential. The council was a group of 71 elders. And they were the group that gathered and made the plan to arrest Jesus. Joseph was in the room as a member of the council for the Sanhedrin trial when leaders decided that they would present Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Now, Joseph didn't agree with the outcome of the trial, but he was important enough to be in the room where it happened. And we only get a few sentences, so we skip some seemingly important details. And apparently Jesus, after the trial, is crucified. We don't know what happens between the council gathering and the crucifixion. But then Joseph marches right into Pilate's office and asks for the body. Now, isn't that interesting? He had the pull to get an audience with Pontius Pilate. He had power. He had leverage. And for whatever reason, he chose to use it in this moment. Now, I have no idea why Pilate took this meeting. Maybe he thought that because Joseph was a member of the council that he was coming to affirm the plot that they dreamed up and celebrate that Jesus had been successfully crucified. That sounds horrible to say, but I bet Pilate had no idea what Joseph was going to spring on him when he walked in that office. The body. I want the body. Can you imagine how startled Pilate must have been when Joseph demanded that? Who would want anything to do with a dead body, crucified or not? Who would want anything to do with Jesus's body? Matthew says, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now there are entire worlds living in that one sentence. I've been imagining how that one sentence must have played out because I can't understand why Pilate would give away the body. If anything, Pilate should have wanted Jesus' body to stay on display in case anyone else got ideas about threatening his power. And I've played out this scene so many times in my mind, and the only reason I can imagine that Pilate would hand over Jesus' body is this, money. Why else would he give it away? I mean, think about this and come back to me if you have a better idea, but that's all I could get to. Maybe Joseph marched in 
and firmly said, name your price. What will it take for you to give me what I want? Or maybe it happened as one of my colleagues imagined a little more coercively, Joseph sitting in, they had a little small talk, and he sits across from Pilate and he says, you give me that body and I'll write a nice check to your, your foundation. There is no other compelling reason for Pilate to appease Joseph. It had to come down to money. And Joseph, that unlikely disciple of Jesus, gets the body before the vultures start to pick away at the flesh, and he wraps it in a clean linen cloth, and he puts it in a tomb. Now, this is another one of those details that would be so easy to skip over, but it's so important. Joseph had access to a tomb. There weren't just unclaimed tombs sitting around in Jerusalem waiting for someone to show up with a body. No one who had been crucified is going to get a tomb. To have a tomb was just yet another sign of wealth. Tombs had to be carved out of rock. This was Joseph's tomb. This was where he'd had instructed his family to lay him to rest. But Joseph couldn't bear the thought of Jesus rotting away in the heat, so he buys the body, and then he lays it in his own tomb. Think about that. That tomb probably already had Joseph of Arimathea carved on the outside of it. What a hassle it must have been to go find someone who could just chisel that away and update the inscription for Jesus. Can you imagine? Without Joseph, there would have been no tomb to visit on Easter morning when the disciples and the women ran to see if the resurrection had happened for themselves. Without Joseph of Arimathea, there wouldn't be a place for tourists to flock and stand in awe of this tomb in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I've been there. I've been one of those tourists. If you've been to Jerusalem and visited the tomb, then you know how all day people just gather around in awe as the details of Jesus's life take on new meaning in the presence of that rock tomb all because of this rich man, Joseph, who was good and righteous. Have you heard the saying, money is the root of all evil? Maybe. Maybe you've heard that preached. I think many people of faith have internalized those words, which is a shame, because these words are from Scripture, but that's actually a distortion of what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. Those are two very different sentiments. Wealth is not bad. But when wealth becomes the thing you love, the thing you hoard, the thing you lust after, that's when problems start. That's the first sign that money has become your religion. 
Joseph's story is such a powerful example of what it means to be a person of faith and wealth. He didn't love his money so much that he couldn't give it away. He didn't love his stuff that money bought him so much that he clenched his fists and was unwilling to share. And maybe that's why Luke, in his three short sentences, thought it important to include this passing detail that Joseph was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. In three sentences about claiming Jesus' body and laying him in the tomb, Luke found it important enough to tell us that. That Joseph lived as someone who expected the promises of his faith to be made real around him. So he used his wealth, his power, his influence to participate in God's work. His wealth was simply a tool. It wasn't something he loved and certainly not something he hoarded. It was just one way for him to participate in what God was already doing in the world. One way for him to bravely claim the convictions of his faith. Maybe that's why he could ask Pilate to name his price or give away his own tomb without thinking much about it. He didn't call his investment advisor to ask how his standard of living would be impacted in retirement if he were to do this. He didn't call the artisans to see how long it would take to get on the list to chisel a new tomb. He didn't run to the bank to check the balance of his accounts. He was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, and he saw an opportunity to participate in God's work. So he did, without ever asking what he'd get in return for doing it, without ever making demands or flaunting this deed to others. He just did it. And you know, Joseph of Arimathea, he only gets mentioned once in the Bible. Now, he does make it into all four Gospels, but only in this one occurrence. He's never mentioned again beyond these couple of sentences. He doesn't get an award. Most people probably don't even know who he is. Most people don't know what he did, but it changed that whole story. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Jesus spent his whole ministry with the outcasts, the sick, the poor, the lonely, everyone who'd been forgotten. But at the end of his life, it was this rich man who used his resources to get him down from the cross and ensure that he'd be laid to rest in a tomb. Now that is a plot twist I didn't see coming. But isn't that good news for us? We don't have to become poor to participate in God's kingdom or to understand the demands of our faith. In some ways, this may be a harder scripture to hear than to sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor because we are all capable of following, Jesus, uh, following Joseph's example. If we believe that the promises of our faith are true, 
If we too are waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, then our faith demands that we start asking how we're using our wealth and our influence to bring about God's kingdom right here. And so I hope you'll think seriously about Joseph this week as you consider what you will pledge in the coming year. You think about your relationship to money. Ask yourself, are you waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God too? Is money simply a tool for you to participate in God's work? Or has it become the very object of your affection? My hope is that Joseph emboldens us all to follow his example and bravely participate in God's work among us. Isn't it amazing that we get to do that together? May we behold it for the gift that it is. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.